I'm Pastor Aaron Shepherd, and you're listening to the sermon podcast of Union Congregational Church, a caring community connected through God, loving and serving all along life's journey. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10:15 a.m. in our sanctuary at 55 Rhodes Avenue, next to Bird Park in East Walpole, Massachusetts. You can also join us from anywhere online via our live stream by visiting facebook.com slash churchbythepark. For more information about our church and its ministries, visit churchbythepark.org. Now here's this week's message. The first scripture reading today is John chapter 11, verses 1 through 7, 14 through 15, and 20 through 27. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory. So the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him now. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. May God add a blessing to the hearing of this word. Our second scripture reading picks up in John chapter 11 with the end of the story. Let's continue listening for God's word for us here today. When Martha had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. So they followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. 
When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and there was a stone lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Then Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's a powerful story, and you have to read it from start to finish. It's so rich in its fullness, this text. But its richness is also in in that it points beyond itself as well. This week, I saw a a picture of a low bridge, kind of like those uh, trestle bridges that you drive through on Plimpton Street or on West Street, You know, the ones that have the marking on the sign that tell you how many feet of clearance you have. Well, this sign was a little different. It it hung over the road about 20 yards in front of the bridge. And the sign said, if you hit this sign, you will hit that bridge. And it's one thing for a sign to tell you what the margin of safety is in terms of numbers. This sign gives you a tangible warning. If you hit this sign, you're going to hit that bridge. And this morning's gospel narrative is like that sign. It's the last episode in the first part of John's gospel, the part of John's gospel that is traditionally known as the book of signs and wonders. Throughout the first 12 chapters of John's gospel, there are stories of seven distinct signs that Jesus performs, starting with him turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana. That particular episode, along with this episode of the raising of Lazarus, is unique to John's gospel. The other three gospels don't record it, but the other signs are ones we're familiar with. Walking on water, feeding the 5,000 with just a few loaves and fishes. But John uniquely arranges all of these miracles of Jesus into this progression of seven signs so that the last one, this last sign, this is the big one. This is the one that comes right before John 
transitions into telling the story of Jesus's passion in the second half of the gospel. In fact, on John's account, it is the raising of Lazarus that really is the thing that stirs up all the religious authorities in Judea against Jesus. The raising of Lazarus is then a sign and a wonder. It's like It's like that sign over the road that warns us that a low bridge is coming. If you hit this story of Lazarus coming to life, you can bet that you are approaching the story of Jesus' resurrection. Keep your eyes peeled because Easter is coming. But unlike that road sign, the point of which is to avoid a collision with the bridge, this sign is about inviting our collision, our confrontation with resurrection. As Jesus said to his disciples, this whole story unfolds the way it does, not because it has to, but because Jesus says it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And indeed, he says, so that you may believe. All throughout the story, we hear again and again Jesus saying that what he is doing is not for its own sake, but it is so that you may believe, so that the people may believe. Glory, belief, these are intangible things, I think. They're words that conjure up well, they don't even really conjure up an image. They just, they just conjure up a feeling. And so Jesus is trying to make very tangible the reality of this glory of God. This glory of God that he knows and experiences because it is alive in him. It courses through his body. It is the power that flows out of Jesus into the world to heal people, to bless people, to change their hearts The writer Frederick Buechner once wrote that no matter how fancy and metaphysical uh, church doctrine sounds, it was always some human experience first. The doctrine of the divinity of Christ, for instance, uh, did not begin in the word processor of some 4th century Greek theologian, but in the experience of basically untheological people who knew Jesus of Nazareth and found something happening in their lives that had never happened before. The doctrine puts words to that experience. Turning water into wine, well, that's an amazing experience. Seeing someone walk on water or feed 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes, again, an experience. But this time, Jesus does something that is utterly unimaginable to everyone gathered there. He raises someone from the dead. And you can't think of a more shocking experience, I think, than that. And so attached to this experience, this tangible, this tangible awakening of the dead, we have this doctrine that comes out of it. We call it the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. Statistically speaking, Most American Christians claim that they believe in the doctrine of the resurrection of the body, including most church-going folks. One of the most ancient statements of belief in Christianity is the Apostles' Creed, and it says right there in the Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. 
Resurrection is one of these dogmas of the Christian faith. In the truest sense of that word, dogma, it is something that we are supposed to believe and trust in if we're going to call ourselves Christians. But that's not to say that all the questions about the resurrection of the body are so easily answered. There is, in fact, a whole mess of teachings and doctrines about what the resurrection of the body really means, often describing it in somewhat contradictory ways. People have been wondering about and disagreeing about what Jesus says when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Though you die, if you believe in me, you will yet live. People have been trying to figure out what the heck that means for a very long time. It was clearly a question right at the beginning of the church. It's one of the things that Paul addresses in his letter to the Corinthian church. In the midst of addressing all the other scandals and disagreements within that church, he reserves a place in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians to talk about the resurrection of the body. It's clear that there was need to explain what this word resurrection means, what this sign, what this wonder points to. And To be quite honest, I've been saying the Apostles' Creed for years. I've said that line about the resurrection of the body many times, but I have never read real close chapter 15 of Paul's letter. In fact, I haven't really studied that doctrine of the resurrection of the body very extensively. And so this week I tried to spend some time digging into the theological tradition as though that was going to clarify anything. To be honest, I'm still not sure about what I found there, but I will share with you the the traditional doctrine, as I understand it, that has sort of come down to us, beginning with the Apostle Paul through the early centuries of the church and even down onto the Reformation and that theological stream of tradition in which the United Church of Christ is planted. The traditional teaching, the traditional doctrine of the resurrection of the body goes something like this. When we die, our souls leave our bodies behind, but only temporarily, because it is the natural state, indeed the intention of God, for souls to be connected to bodies. In Genesis, when it describes how God creates human life, God does so by combining the material, physical elements of of dust and mud with a spirit, the breath of God, which is blown into the body. That is the source of life. And so the soul and the body, they, they come together at the moment of creation. That is the way they are supposed to be. But when we die, our soul departs, but only temporarily. Because in the last days, at the end of time, the dead shall rise again, and all of those souls that are waiting and biding their time will be reconstituted in what the Apostle Paul calls resurrected bodies. We will become ourselves again. We will be the same as we are, but with a few differences. These resurrected bodies are not subject to the same kind of corruptions as our present physical bodies. They don't hunger or thirst. They do not grow tired. They do not get too hot or too cold. They are in every way perfectly united with our spirits 
so that Paul even calls them spiritual bodies. It's for this reason uh, that some of the early theologians said that the resurrected Christ could pass through walls. is because he had this kind of spiritual body. And once we find ourselves in these resurrected bodies, so the teaching goes, then the final judgment of God comes. But remember, it is Christ who sits in judgment over us. The Christ of compassion, the bearer of forgiveness and mercy, the one who says, I do not call you disciples, but I call you friends. And so what a friend we have in Jesus And how good it is to have a friend in the judgment seat, is it not? And then, after we get the approval of Jesus, we are ushered into eternal life. Not to live on as a soul or a spirit disembodied, but as a resurrected body, forever rejoicing in the glory of God, which is something we experience in our resurrected bodies. That's that's the doctrine. Do you believe it? Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. Do you believe it? And Martha says, yes, Lord. Of course I do. But then they come to the tomb, and she wavers. She says, there's going to be a smell. He's been in there for four days. He is dead, and dead things do not smell good. Her words betray her lack of belief in what Jesus just said. Even though they die, they will live. She still has her doubts. She still has her doubts that Lazarus could be alive. Her answer to the question, do you believe, is less than certain. And that's okay, I think. I think that's actually the message, why this is included here. It's okay to say, I believe, but to retain some uncertainties. The late Reverend Dr. Leo Sandin, who was pastor of this church in the 1960s, uh, before going on to a career in academia at Florida State University, he wrote this column in the Tallahassee Democrat newspaper for over 20 years. And some of those columns were collected into a book in 2002. We have copies of it here in our church library. And one of the columns from 1989 was called Absolute Certainty is Not for Everyone. He wrote, I cannot think of one of my opinions or any of my truths that I believe to be infallible. My tentativeness does not prevent me from serious commitment, though, But you won't see me with a bumper sticker saying, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. He says that there are certainly advantages to absolute certainty. He says there are psychological advantages and intellectual advantages. Indeed, in academia, absolute certainty in the rightness and correctness of one's own views is actually a great way to get ahead. Um, And it's also, Sandin remarks, less work to operate from a base of absolute truth. That's because it is wearying to constantly have to revisit issues and revise our positions. It takes energy to really listen to other opinions, to think them through. 
And while he was talking about social and moral issues in that column, I think there is no topic more wearying and energy intensive to think about and to come back to again and again than this question about what happens to us after we die, the question we are confronted with in this story. It's perhaps for this reason that uh, in Calvin's Institutes on the Christian Religion, he says, it is neither lawful nor expedient to inquire too curiously concerning one's soul's, one's soul's state after death. He says, many torment themselves overmuch with disputing as to what place the souls occupy and whether or not they already enjoy heavenly glory. It is foolish and rash to inquire concerning unknown matters more deeply than God permits us to know. And so that brings me back around to this story of Lazarus, what is revealed and attested to in the scripture and also what is left unsaid. One of the things that we know here is that Lazarus is in the tomb for four days, that he is fully, fully dead. Jesus was in the tomb for just two days before he was resurrected. Lazarus doubles that. He is not mostly dead. He is dead, dead. But many, many commentators, theologians, apologists are quick to say that Lazarus, just like the other stories of Jesus raising people from the dead, in which usually they have not been dead particularly long, many theologians and apologists say that Lazarus is just another case of what they call resuscitation and not resurrection. Lazarus comes out of the tomb still wrapped in his grave cloths. It's the same body that was put in that has now come back to life, they say. The resurrected body, though, is a different and new one. Jesus doesn't come out of the tomb in the grave cloths. Remember, they're wrapped up, they're folded nice and tidy there on Easter morning. So Lazarus and Jesus, they're, they're very different. One, a resuscitation coming back from the dead. The other, resurrection, something truly miraculous. And so the raising of Lazarus is just a sign, a foretaste of the glory to come on Easter Sunday. But I'll be honest, I don't really, I think that's making a lot out of this distinction. I think it is pretty miraculous that someone four days in the tomb would come back to life. I mean, if, it's a, if that's a sign, that's one heck of a sign. It's not just a 12-foot, 6-inch clearance sign. It's a, if you hit this sign, you will hit that bridge kind of sign. You can't miss it. I think Jesus' intention in this episode, he makes it very clear, is that he wants this sign to be so near the real thing, the truth, the reality of resurrection, that we can feel it, that we can believe it. Beekner says, unless you can somehow participate in the experience that lies behind a doctrine, simply to subscribe to it doesn't mean all that much. In other words, you can repeat the Apostles' Creed until you're blue in the face, but here in the gospel, we are given this experience, this story, that if we live into it, we can, we can taste, we can see the reality of resurrection there. It's one thing, 
It's one thing to subscribe to these doctrines in theory. It is another to claim some kind of absolute understanding or certainty. But I think what the gospel gives us here today is a way to live our faith that is a third option. It is the offer of this sign, the sign that directs us into the experience that we may not fully understand, but that in confronting, even even colliding with that experience, we may experience a change in our inner being. Without a doubt, the story of the raising of Lazarus has profoundly tragic elements. It is, a, it is a fearful story, one full of uncertainty, the kind of story that we may run from or avoid altogether. We see in it both the believer, Martha, but we also see Mary, the one who doesn't have doctrinal words, the one who only has her tears, and those tears are real, and the grief is palpable. So much so that Jesus himself is disturbed in his very being by that grief. Every detail, right down to the fear of the stench coming out of the open grave, is meant to draw us into that moment, as well as meeting us where we are. For we all know the experience of grief. We all know what it is like to confront endings, even that most grave ending. Jesus comes and meets us in that moment. And it's only then, it's only then when we have been drawn into this scene of such pain and sorrow of death as we know it, it's only in that moment when, that we are then shocked and shaken awake by the revelation of God, by the loud voice saying, Lazarus, come out, And then he comes out. God's word can awaken anything. That's what Father Jim Martin says about this story. God often speaks to us when we are slumbering away our lives, living a living death of dullness and dreariness. And sometimes God speaks to us in a still, small voice or with tender words. But sometimes, Martin says, God speaks with a loud voice. God may need to get our attention in a very blunt way with the comment of a friend that prevents us from doing something sinful, or or in an intense experience of prayer that floods us with peace, or in a Bible story that hits us like a thunderclap. And when God's word hits us, we wake up so that like Lazarus, we too may be unbound and allowed to be as we are meant to be. Ultimately, the theologian Henry Nouwen once wrote of the doctrine of resurrection that it doesn't solve our problems about dying and death. It's not some sort of happy ending to life's struggle. Resurrection doesn't get rid of the reality or the tragedy of death, but it does say and express God's faithfulness. Resurrection, he writes, is an expression of God's faithfulness to Jesus and to all of God's children. The resurrection is God's way of revealing to us that nothing that belongs to God will ever go to waste. What belongs to God will never get lost 
not even our mortal remains. The resurrection doesn't answer any of our questions, our curiosities about life after death. It doesn't tell us how it will be or how it will look, but it does teach us this, that love is stronger than death. After that revelation, we must simply remain silent. Now, and concludes, leaving the whys, wheres, hows, and whens behind and simply trust. We who are on the way of Christ, we have all been given signs of our own. Some subtle that point to the reality of God, others that crack us over the head, like that sign over the road, warning that a low bridge is coming. These signs can tell us when it is time to mourn, when it is time to dance, when it is time to praise, and when it is time to relent and find a new way. And so I encourage you to heed these signs. That even if we don't have complete and utter understanding of their meaning, that we trust and believe in these signs. Because you don't have to be certain to trust. You don't have to be certain to love. You need only be willing to take the leap to trust and believe and allow love to do the rest. And so in Christ we see God taking the leap. Trust and believe and love will do the rest. Thank you for listening. I hope that God's word has come alive and blessed you today. If you want more information about Union Congregational Church, once again, feel free to come and visit us on Sunday morning or online at our website, churchbythepark.org.